The fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles has great importance for the people of God, those who are called, chosen, and remain faithful to the end. It's a time in which we will rule on this earth with Jesus Christ. As I mentioned the other day, it isn't just about lions and lambs for us, although I think I disappointed somebody uh, afterward because they thought, well, I, I always wanted to hug a, a lion. Well, you can do it as a spirit being, and if he bites you, then you're okay because he'll get a mouthful of nothing. But our our goal here is not for this physical earth, but it is for, in other words, us being physical, it's for the physical people on this earth where the kingdom of God rules on the earth and brings about this peace and happiness that we all dream of, that we all look forward to. And to see the joy and the happiness in the world that will eventually be there, not necessarily the first day or the first year, but as they come up to Jerusalem to learn about the ways of God and God pours out his blessings upon them and they find out that there is something far greater and more interesting than Pokemon Go, they're going to learn a better way and we're going to enjoy the happiness that we see there. In Revelation, the 20th chapter and verse 4, it affirms this fact for us. The goal of those who are called, chosen, and remain faithful at this time. It says in verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness, their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Yes, during this age, it's not always an easy time, although we've mostly had it easy. Our trials have been more of a spiritual nature, following the truth, hanging on to the truth, sticking with the truth, and not following crowds and so forth. But there was a time when, in the past, many people were beheaded. As we read in the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, sawn asunder, stoned and so forth. They were hungry. They went without. And those things are coming again. And I don't want to scare our young people or even those of us who are older, but times are going to get difficult, and it's going to take courage on the part of all of us who live through the difficult times yet to come. And I hope that we look upon that opportunity to be a witness for Christ with great positive feelings. So he saw thrones, and judgment was committed to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast, who refused to follow the politically correct way that we're going to see in the future. In fact, really right now, it's already there. Or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and they reigned. They ruled with Christ for a thousand years. That's the hope that God has given to us. In Revelation, I'm sorry, Luke, the ninth, 19th chapter, Luke 19, it 
very familiar passage, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it, but I just want to <clears throat> remind us of what we've been called to. This is the parable of the nobleman. It begins in verse 12. And then, after giving out these minas to ten different individuals, the first one came, verse 16, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas, units of money. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little. Have authority over ten cities. And then the second one, verse 19, he said to him, You also be over five cities. And so we see here that God is going to hand out responsibilities to his people to rule over cities. I once thought that there aren't enough cities for all of God's people. So I started investigating a little bit, and I found that in China there are over a third of a million, something like 350, 360,000 cities, plus perhaps villages that aren't considered there. Also in India, a very similar number. I've even taken out an atlas and looked at map of the United States or map of Canada. And you realize that not every little village is on that map. It's not listed there, but I counted them up and there are quite a few. I don't remember the number I came to at the time. But something that struck home to me, we got a go-to in an area that is north of Thunder Bay. I know at least two people here that know where Thunder Bay is because they're here. And, you know, where's Waldo? Well, where's Brenda and Detmar? They're, they're here. Don't raise your hand. Let them find you. See if you can find the folks from Thunder Bay before the feast is over. But this go-to, if you could drive to where this person lived, I calculated it must be about 15 hours north. Of course, from Toronto to Thunder Bay, it's about 15 hours if you take the logging trail shortcut. Saves about 45 minutes. But I got this call from this fellow, first of all a letter and then later on a phone call, and he said, there are only three churches around here, there are 30 villages. Now when I looked him up on uh, MapQuest, it pointed out a spot in the middle of a lake. But around that area where you see no names of anything, he said there are 30 villages around here. And I was surprised. And I wonder how many towns, cities, villages there are in the world. But I can assure you that God doesn't say something frivolously. If he says that some people will rule five cities, some people rule ten, there will probably be people helping out under them, working with these cities. God is going to give us rulership. But let's admit it, the fact that for most of us, if we were thrust into the office of mayor of any moderately sized city, not even a big city, but a moderately sized city today, we would be in way over our heads, wouldn't we? We probably wouldn't even know where to begin. I'm sure there are some that are convinced that they know exactly where to begin, but I think that many of us would be in over our heads. And so, 
when we look at the, the facts, it seems strange that this is going to be our reward. How is it going to work? When you look at the person next to you, do you see someone who's going to rule over a city? Maybe you think you can, but what about the fellow next to you? In the book of First Corinthians, the first chapter, it tells us what we have here, what we are in general as God's people. He says in verse 26, You see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And so it's all about image and very little substance. What does a person really, really think? God, through the Apostle Paul, says that he's going to take the weak and he's going to confound these people who think they are so smart and so elite today. In this sermon, I'm going to show you why you, as an individual, as well as that person sitting next to you, has the potential to rule over cities, whether five or ten or one, or whether to assist in that, but to have the opportunity to rule in tomorrow's world. And the first point that I'd like to make is that leadership can be learned. Rulership and leadership is something that can be learned. And that's part of the reason that we are here today and all of the days during the feast is because God is educating us. How many people go to church today to really be educated? More and more church has become entertainment. They have stages larger than this one filled with all kinds of musical instruments and really, you don't know whether you're in a rock concert, you know, this type of thing, or whether you're in a church. I never have understood this raising, waving hands thing. But anyway, that's the way it is. And we've been told at the NRB and other places, the way to grow a church is music. You've got to have lots of music. We have music here. We have special music. We sing ourselves and make a joyful noise, and it comes out wonderfully. But we are here to be educated. And when you think about it, you're a very rare group today to be able to come for eight days, actually nine if you include the opening evening, and sit and listen to somebody talk to try to give you education. And this is what God is doing. He is educating us. He is teaching us. Every single one of us in this room are being educated. And so while we may start out the weak of the world, the foolish of the world, God does not expect us to stay that way. And he's teaching us valuable lessons. And we'll see some of those lessons as we go through this. But I'd like to read something here from a book that I found very helpful, uh, and 
sooner or later you, you end up using a few politicians one way or the other in their books because they're the ones that write them, usually. But this is one is Leadership by Rudolph Giuliani. Now, think whatever you may of this man. He took New York City, where they had about 2,000 murders a year, down to about 500 murders a year during the time he was mayor. He is a leader. He's not a perfect leader. He's got his faults. But nevertheless, he does understand a little bit about leading a city, and a big city at that. And he makes these comments toward the beginning of the book in the preface, you might say. Uh, it is the preface. Uh, I'll just read a few comments that he makes here. He says, the idea that I somehow became a different person on that day, meaning 9-11, that there was a pre-September 11, Rudy, and a wholly other post-September 11, Rudy, is not true. I was prepared to handle September 11 precisely because I was the same person who had been doing his best to take on challenges my whole career. Now, that might be a little bit arrogant, but notice some of the things he says here. Leadership does not simply happen. It doesn't just happen. We don't get it by osmosis, by, by doing nothing. It can be taught, learned, developed. And he says there are many ways to lead. Some people, like Franklin Roosevelt, inspired with stirring speeches. Others, like Joe DiMaggio, led by example. Winston Churchill and Douglas MacArthur were both exceptionally brave and excellent speakers. Ronald Reagan led through the strength and consistency of his character. People followed him because they believed in him. It says leaders have to control their emotions under pressure. We as people need to see someone who is stronger than, or people need to see someone stronger than they are but human as well. He says, all my life I have been thinking about how to be a leader. I wonder, do we think about what it means to be a leader? Are we preparing for this time in the future, the millennium, when we will be changed, resurrected to be with Christ and be given responsibilities are we training for what to do? And I know that there are some older people here and perhaps some widows and maybe some women who uh, you know, aren't out in the work world and think, well, what can I do? How can I, how can I be a leader? Well, you can learn. And it might not be as difficult as you think. And you might find that it's going to be more exciting than you think. It says here, he, he writes, all leaders are influenced by those they admire. Now, one person that I've admired always, one of my favorite books of the Bible, is the book of Nehemiah. So let's turn over there to the book of Nehemiah. And let's look at how this man led, because in a way we have a blueprint for what you and I are going to be given to do. When Christ returns, this world is going to be in shambles. Cities are going to be destroyed. 
bombed out. It's going to be like Aleppo and some of those other places in the Middle East, destroyed. And here was Nehemiah, an individual who was somebody of, of uh, stature, but he was given a job to do. And we can look at what he did, and we can find how he did it and apply those same principles. It begins here in chapter 1, and let's start in verse 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, It came to pass in the month of Kislu, in the twentieth year, as I was in Chushan the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judea, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. These were people who had gone back to Jerusalem after the captivity. And they were to go back to build the temple, which had been done in the book of Ezra. But the city was still in shambles. The wall had not been rebuilt. The houses were still in disrepair, except for the ones where the the people actually lived. And so it says, so it was, when I heard these words, well, let me go back, verse 3, it says, they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity uh, in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. And it shows he was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So here we find that he sees that there is a task before him. A city that has been destroyed is still in shambles. Is this not the state of the world when Christ returns? Are we not going to encounter the same conditions? And so if we look at how he handled it, then we can also learn how we can go about rebuilding cities. In the second chapter, we find that he came to the city of Jerusalem. He'd been given permission to go back to rebuild the city. And so what did he do? It's a very important principle of leadership. We read it in the second chapter, verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. It was probably a full moon, I'm just guessing, because he was able to see. He was able to adjust his eyes enough to be able to see what he had to deal with. And I went up on the fountain gate and the king's uh, pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up uh, in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or others who did the work. So he viewed the scene. 
Now, this might not sound like much, but this is something that as a spirit being, you're not going to be hindered by uh, the various ailments that you might be experiencing right now. You might be walking with a cane and think, well, why can't, well, you're going to be a spirit being. You won't have to worry about that sort of thing. But this is a principle of leadership. He viewed the scene firsthand. He didn't just hear reports from others and start barking out orders. He viewed what he was dealing with firsthand. One of the iconic pictures of 9-11 was Rudolph Giuliani running down the street with his hand holding a, a, um, a handkerchief over his face so that he could try to breathe through all the dust after one or both of the buildings had collapsed. And he's covered with dust. And we might assume that he was there just because his office was near there. Well, the truth of the matter was that when he heard at the very beginning, when he heard what happened, he immediately rushed to the scene to see it for himself. Let's notice here on page four of his book of what he says about this. He says, while mayor, I made it my policy to see with my own eyes the scene of every crisis so I could evaluate it firsthand. It was a lesson I learned from a detective named Carl Bogan. So we see that he learned from someone else, by the example of someone else. He says, back when I was a young assistant U.S. attorney, Detective Bogan investigated many of the cases for my office. He always underlined the importance of seeing things with your own eyes, saying that all kinds of things would suggest themselves, the alibi a witness could not possibly have slammed the door of the red building because the red building had a revolving door, and so on. It's interesting when you see things firsthand, you discover things. So he always made it his policy when there was a crisis to go and see it for himself, not to rely on reports from others, but to see it firsthand. You know, isn't it interesting that we see that in the Bible? If you go back to the book of Genesis, they'd heard the report of Sodom and those other cities and how wicked they were. And it says, let us go down to see if the reports are true. Now, that brings up a lot of questions. I don't know, honestly, how God evaluates everything. We know that by His Spirit, He is everywhere. But what we read there is that here's God, or the one who became Jesus Christ, saying, let's go down and look up close, firsthand, of what these reports are all about. We see that as an example. We see here that Nehemiah did the same thing. He went out by night secretly to survey the scene to find out what he was dealing with. In the second chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 2, verse 17, Nehemiah 2, and verse 17, after he had surveyed the scene, says, Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. He's talking to the nobles. He's talking to the leaders that are there. 
Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. So the next point we find here, besides looking at the task before you and surveying the scene, is you have to sell the idea. You have to bring others to help out. You need to enlist help. For any great task, you cannot do it all yourself. And I know that it's hard sometimes for us to give something up to somebody else because, humanly speaking, most of us think that we can do it better than anybody else. And every parent can learn this lesson. If you're a mother and your daughter or son wants to make something, make dinner, it's the tendency to want to step in and do it for them because they're doing it so slow, especially if you're in a hurry for something. But to teach them how to do it, and then eventually they become good at it, and life is easier in the long run because they know how to do it. But it takes patience. It takes teaching, doesn't it? And every mother who is here, I would say, has learned to teach and has learned patience. And that's a very valuable lesson, and it's a lesson that we can apply in virtually any aspect of life in terms of any any chore that needs to be done, any task that needs to be done. We teach our children to pick up their toys. We could do it easier, couldn't we? But we do because we want them to learn, and we teach them so that eventually it'll be better. You won't have to spend the rest of your life picking up their toys or their clothes or whatever it might be. So we teach them those tasks. We enlist others. We sell the idea to them. We sell the the concept of what we're trying to accomplish. So there in Nehemiah, the second chapter, verses 17 and 18, we see that Nehemiah gathered the leaders and sold it to them who would then sell it to the rest of the people. The third chapter is a very valuable chapter. It's one of the greatest principles of of, uh, leadership, and it really goes along with what I just was talking about, but that is cutting a task down to size, in other words, delegating. Every book on leadership talks about delegation. But delegation isn't always chosen by people. Delegation is so important. When you look at chapter 3, you find that they divided the city, the wall of the city, into various groups. And this group then repaired this part of the wall. And another group repaired another part of the wall. And another group repaired their part. And so you took this big wall that was to go around the whole city. Instead of just looking at the whole job to be done, it was broken down into smaller parts, bite-sized that could be handled. One of the first sermonettes that I ever heard in my first year in the church was in Santa Barbara, California. And I don't remember who the speaker was. I, I, I think I might, but it was somebody from headquarters that had come up from Pasadena. And he gave this sermonette, and he was talking about how when he was in construction 
and he did plumbing, uh, he, he was given a, a task of, of plumbing a high-rise building. And he told his boss, he said, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. It's too big. And his boss explained to him, he said, well, can you plumb this particular apartment? So, yeah, he knew how to do that. Well, can you plumb the one next to it? And he said, yes. He said, well, just do one at a time. Just one at a time. It's kind of like what I said the other day. You want to get to 50? Just wake up every day. One day at a time. You know, when we break something up that, that is big and bring it down to bite-sized pieces, then we can understand it. We can comprehend how it can be done. And the task can be done. Now, I would suppose, I've thought about this, that, that some people built better than others. But the fact is, no one person would be able to build the whole wall. But when you divide it up, at least within a reasonable period of time, when you divide it up amongst different people, yes, the wall will get built. And then after the wall is built, if there are some weak places, you can go back and you can strengthen those areas. But he divided it up. Delegation. Breaking a big task down to smaller tasks. It's like with Mr. Stroud here. He's overseeing the feast. And he can't do it all. So he has people that work on the sound system. He has people that are organizing this activity and that activity and something else. And he has others that are ushering. And he's got people over the ushers or somebody over the ushers. And the mother's room, you may have somebody over the mother's room. You have all these different departments. And if you put the right people there and give them the task of overseeing it, the job gets done. And it's not so overwhelming when you look at it that way. In uh, this book on leadership, page 91, to show that this is a principle that even the world understands, I think most of us know the world understands it. We sometimes miss it in the Bible. Juliana makes this comment. He says, in all this, the overall leader must identify and install the right managers. Under a smoothly functioning accountability system, such figures wield considerable power and enjoy plenty of creative maneuvering space. Those who need their hand, I'm sorry, those who need their hands held and want every move to originate at headquarters will never succeed. The leader's job is to set the tone and agenda, including specific targets for managers in the field, and to supply whatever advice, encouragement, and resources are needed to meet those targets. Now, even in setting the right managers, it's important to bring others into the the task. I remember a case of um, the uh, living youth camp. I've often said everything I know I learned at camp, and there's an awful lot of truth in that. But I remember I got a phone call that one of our members had died, and I was going to have to go back to Michigan, not Michigan, but to Ontario, uh, to perform a funeral. And so I was going to be gone two or three days. It was eight hours each way, or eight or nine hours, plus the funeral. So I was probably gone about three days. 
And we had a big activity coming up. We were going to take all of the camp, all the campers and staff, all the staff who wanted to go, to a place called Mackinac Island. And we had to take buses down to St. Ignace, about 45 minutes away, and then get on a boat and go across to Mackinac Island, a 15, 20-minute trip across the, the water there. And everybody be on the island, and it has all kinds of tourist places, fudge shops and different things, and the horse-drawn carriages, no automobiles on the island. I think they have an ambulance, possibly, and, and a fire truck, but that's it. It's either horses or it's bicycles or it's foot. Now, when you start to think about taking, because some of the adult staff didn't want to go, but we had about 160, 165 people on the trip, and you start thinking about all these teenagers and young adults And they're going to be out there, and how in the world are you going to control that situation to make sure that nobody gets in trouble? And so we sat down, several of us. I don't know if Mr. Munson was in on that or not, but uh, I know Jonathan McNair was there and uh, several others. We sat down and decided, how are we going to do this? And we came up with a, a plan that we would have one a counselor or adult worker, young adult worker, and one high school worker, and they would have six campers with them, and they would be responsible for those six campers. And we knew we had good people. And the reason we knew we had good, good people was because after our first camp in Missouri back in 1995, we made a conscious decision to begin to train our staff by, first of all, working with high schoolers. We'd make them workers as high school workers. They would then progress to young adult workers, to counselors, to other uh, jobs and responsibilities. And we knew the people we were working with fairly well. You can never know anybody perfectly, but we, we knew we had good people. And we knew that this plan should work. And so anyway, I left, and I left it with Mr. McNair to organize it, to work out all the details, to make the assignments and everything. And I came back just before the uh, the day before, or that I guess it was the night before, evening before, and then we went to Mackinac Island. And you know, it was one of the most relaxing times that I've ever had at camp because I knew everything was under control. I knew that the people that were making those assignments would do it right. And, and we knew that the people we were making the assignments to, the counselors, the assistant counselors and the others, would do the job, and we were able to relax and walk around the island ourselves and not be worried about it. You know, sometimes leading is not always hard. Sometimes it's very difficult, but leading isn't always hard when you have the right people in the right place at the right time. It was a wonderful experience, and I never will forget how relaxing it was to know that everything was taken care of because there were good people doing the work. And they were choosing good people to assist them in doing that. We also must stay focused and persevere. Any leader of anything is going to come across difficult times There are going to be times when it's easy to lose focus. Dr. Waneo talks so much about focus, keeping our focus. I hope we can, we can really take that to heart. 
And I appreciate that because focus is so important. It's so easy to get distracted in this world today. But in Nehemiah, the fourth chapter, verses 1 to 3, Nehemiah 4, verses 1 to 3, it says, But it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. These were the people that were there in the land, the Samaritans. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? They look like they're planning on working. Are they going to do it all in one day? They'll wear wear themselves out. Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now, much of the rock in that part of the world is sandstone, limestone. It's, It's a sedimentary type of a rock. And it will have a certain amount of moisture in it. And when you burn rocks that have moisture in them, they crack. They become brittle and somewhat worthless. And that whole city had been burned. And so they said, well, are they going to do this with the materials they have, these feeble people? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. It will be so weak. They won't be able to do much. Don't worry about it. They can't do much. Down in verse 6, it says, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, the, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing and there is much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said they will neither know nor see anything till we come into the midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. And so Nehemiah uh, set up a a system where one person held the, the weapons, another person worked, They all strapped the sword by their side. They stayed there at night. They didn't uh, go home to sleep. They only took their clothes off to bathe and wash. And they came up with a plan to defeat the enemy or to at least protect themselves against the enemy. You can read of that in the remainder of it. We see that great courage was exercised by Nehemiah and by the Jews. He didn't lose focus. He persevered. He just kept moving forward. He knew what his job was to build the wall, and he kept moving forward and didn't allow any distraction to come upon him. Now, that's very different from what we read in the book of Ezra, because in Ezra, we see that they were to build the temple, and they laid the foundation of the temple, and then the people of the land hired counselors against them, and they stopped. They stopped for about 16 years. 
until Haggai and Zechariah, which we heard about on the Sabbath for those who were here, uh, stirred them up to rebuild, to start building the temple again. But in this case, Nehemiah was not going to be distracted. He had courage, but he also had that focus. This is what we're going to do, and nobody's going to get in the way of doing what we know is right, what he knew was right to do. You know, courage is, is a part of leadership. And the fact that you are here tells me that there's a lot of courage in this room. Some of you have lost jobs because of the Sabbath or the holy days. There might even be some people here. It wouldn't surprise me if there are at least one or two or three or a half dozen who don't know what they're going to go home to, whether their job is still going to be there whether an unconverted mate is going to follow through on the threat to leave if you go to that feast. I know that there are people, even right here, who face that sort of thing, at least in the past and maybe right now today. Certainly the feast around the world, we have people in that category. Some of you have lost jobs just because of the weekly Sabbath. We've had to stand up. In the case of many who are here, We had to stand up against apostasy, against the watering down of the truth. More than the watering down of the truth, the total abandonment of the truth. And that took courage. And that's a part of leadership. In the sixth chapter, verse 1, we see that Nehemiah needed courage. He says, it happened when Samballat, Tobiah... Uh, Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there was no br- there were no breaks left in it, though the doors at that time had not been hung. That Samballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, "Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono." But they thought to do me harm. They said, "Come now, let's let's talk about this. Let's reason together about this." But he knew he wasn't naive. He knew that there was harm. And, you know, to be a leader, we cannot be naive. Remember what happened to Gedaliah? He was placed as the governor. Read that in the book of Jeremiah. He was placed as governor over the Jews after Nebuchadnezzar had taken everybody else captive. There were a few that were left behind. And Gedaliah was was a good man. But he was naive. And so when he was told that this other individual is going to assassinate you, he's going to kill you. He said, oh, no, he would never do that. And it cost him his life. You know, yesterday, Dr. Moneo told us about love. And not a sentimental type of love, but a real love, godly love. And without that, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, we're like a a clanging cymbal. It's the greatest thing of of the three, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. We know that. But in order to be a leader, as Dr. Winnale certainly knows and would attest to, you have to have more than just love. Love is important. It's essential. It's a foundation. But you also have to have more than that. Gedaliah was apparently a... um, a very loving individual, always looking 
for the best in someone else, and it cost him his life because someone who warned him and knew what he was talking about, he just couldn't believe. There are important lessons that we have to learn concerning leadership. And there's not a single character trait that will answer for everything. It's a lot of things that make leadership. But it's things, if you take them one at a time, just as he was pointing out, if you take one character characteristic at a time, you begin to build the structure. And any one of these is not hard of itself or impossible of itself for, for anybody here. But we have to learn how to put them together. And I'll just say this, that any of us that have ever been in a position where we've had a, a task like a summer camp, like Mr. Uh, Munson or um, Mr. Stroud overseeing the feast here, is going to make mistakes. I used to always tell the campers when I was, not the campers, but the staff, uh, at the beginning, I'd say, you know, you're going to make mistakes. And that's okay. I would tell them, it better not be a mistake where it's a total violation of a rule that we have, like don't take the boats outside or the canoes outside of the islands, because you're just violating something you understand and know. But you'll make mistakes. And I always said, that's okay because I've made more mistakes than you're going to make because I've been working at this for quite a few months. And I've already made more mistakes than you're going to, you have time to make here at, at camp. So we have to accept those things, but at the same time, we have to, to be faithful and loyal to the big picture items, the commandments and so forth. Those are the things that can get us into to real serious trouble. But here we have Nehemiah, and he's told to come down there and speak with them, and he, he was savvy enough to know that this was not the thing to do, so he sent messengers to them saying, verse 3, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? They knew if they could knock off the leader that the whole thing would collapse. And he knew that he could not do it. So then they wrote letters against him, or a letter against him. And then in verse 10 it says, Afterward I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mahedabel, who was a secret informer. Can you imagine what it was like to have people right there in his midst who are working for the other side? And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. Now, it would have been very easy for him to go into the temple with a threat like that. And I said, should such a man, verse 11, as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. So he was able to see what was really a problem, what was not. And he recognized that they were just trying to sideline him. If they couldn't kill him, get him out there, take him away, then they could scare him into hiding out and being a coward. 
You know, there are people of great courage in this world. And we could read through the whole Bible and we'd never run out of heroes with courage, you know, in a, in a single sermon. I'd like to read one that you might not be as aware of. And this isn't so much about uh, ruling a city, but it, it, it has to do with leadership. It, it has to do with, you know, projecting a, a nation forward. Um, on page, let me find where this is here. 230 of a book called Into the Black. It's about the space shuttle. Uh, but it's, it's about a lot more than the space shuttle. It's about the uh, Apollo missions. And uh, it's just a very, very interesting book. I read a little bit yesterday in the, the meeting with the uh, deacons and elders. But this is something that I did not know. Well, there's a lot I didn't know in reading this. But the... Uh, the first space shuttle, Commander John Young, was under no illusions whatsoever about the dangers involved in riding the shuttle's first flight. Anyone, he said, who sits on top of the largest hydrogen-oxygen-fueled system in the world, knowing they're going to light the bottom. This was of the Apollo. He's not, he was the commander of, of the first shuttle, but uh, it, it's going back to the time when he was going to go up in Apollo 16. And he says that anyone who could sit on top of that, uh, knowing that they're going to light the bottom and doesn't get a little worried, does not fully understand the situation. For good measure, he also pointed out that the last time he could think of when anyone had climbed aboard a flying machine full of hydrogen was the Hindenburg. And that, he remarked, didn't work out so good. His wife, Susie, didn't want him to fly. When Young had been training for Apollo 16, she'd become aware of a, I guess so that's talking about the shuttle up to this point now, but going back to Apollo 16, she'd become aware of a formal NASA risk analysis that rated his crew's chances of surviving the mission as low as 20%. Isn't that amazing? They weren't numbers that the management in Building 1 chose to share with the astronaut office, but Susie shared them with her husband. Young, Young could only counter by telling her it was his job. Asked later whether it was a profession that needed daring and courage, he smiled, Daring and courage? I hope you don't need any daring and courage because I don't have any of that. Instead, he just kept picking away, firing off memos about the things he could fix. Those that were out of his control, he brushed aside with self-effacing good humor. Asked during one meeting about what kind of cockpit display he favored while performing the difficult and dangerous return-to-launch site abort maneuver. In other words, when the shuttle was to go off, at, at a certain point, they could abort and try to come back. Very difficult maneuver. Uh, he maintained that he was the wrong person to ask. If you're going on an RTLS, return to a landing site, he said, I'll have, have my hands over my eyes and I'll be going, ugh. That was the humor that he had about the whole thing. But that's courage, isn't it? To know that your chance of survival is only one in five. Very dangerous missions that those men went on. As we know, not all of them 
survived it. It takes great courage. We need to never forget that true success comes from God. And when we look at Nehemiah, we see that with all the techniques that he may have used, we might call them techniques of leadership, he always trusted in God. He knew that his success came from above. Notice chapter 1, verse 4. He says, so it was when I heard these words, the words that they'd brought back about the state of the, the city of Jerusalem, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, eternal God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you. And it goes on with this prayer that he had uh, spoken there. And then it finishes off verse 11. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day. He was the king's cupbearer. He was in a unique position to do something about the problem in Jerusalem. But he sought God through fasting and prayer, beseeching God to work something out. And it didn't exactly work out the way that he thought. He, he was no doubt going to bring up the subject somehow, but he was so worried and so concerned about it that the king recognized there was something wrong, and he asked him about it. And as he says there, he was dreadfully afraid. Uh, that's verse 2 of chapter 2. And he said to the king, May the king live forever. Good start to a conversation. And then he says, Here's the problem. And then in verse 4, the king asks, well, what is your request? The latter part of verse 4, so I prayed to the God of heaven. He gave a quick, silent prayer before he opened his mouth. He prayed to the God of heaven. Notice over in the second chapter, verse 18. And I told them, this is at Jerusalem when he meets with the elders there. I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me, and also the king's words. So he told them who it was that was behind this project, the king, but more so God. In chapter 4, verse 4, we see this scattered all through the book of Nehemiah. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to the land of to a land of captivity. So he prayed to God. Verse 5, Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So when opposition set in, he went to God. In verse 20 of this same chapter, it says, Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. This is when they were afraid that somebody would... Uh, uh, take uh, would fight against them, and he says, our God will fight for us. Yes, we have our swords, we have our spears, we have all of our equipment, but it will be God that gives us the victory. Our God will fight for us. Chapter 6, verse 9 says, For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened and the work, and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. 
And when it was all said and done, when they had finished the wall, verse 15, in a matter of 52 days, remarkable feat. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. They recognized that this is really unusual, 52 days to be able to accomplish this feat, that there had to be something behind it. So he knew that God was, was there. The foundation of all knowledge, including the principles on which leadership is developed, comes from the Word of God. This is the foundation. It is the, the filter through which everything else needs to be filtered. It needs to come through there because there are a lot of leadership principles in the world that are not right leadership principles. There are a lot that are. But even God tells us that uh, there are things outside of the Bible that we can look at. The Bible says that we are to learn principles of leadership from a lot of areas. Let's notice Proverbs, the first chapter, Proverbs 1. There's, there's wisdom surrounding us all the time. Proverbs 1, verse 20. says, Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses. At the openings of the gates to the city, she speaks her words. Now, the wisdom that is talking about here is talking about moral wisdom as a general sense. But when you go through all the Proverbs, you see that there are Proverbs on how to deal with your neighbor, uh, how to get ahead in life, how to be a leader instead of just a follower all of your life. There are all kinds of Proverbs here about other things besides just what we might call moral issues. In this particular case, it's really talking primarily about moral issues, but the book of Proverbs says, it tells us that wisdom calls from without. It's, it's in the city gate. It's, it's all over. It's all around us. You know, one place that we can learn great wisdom is one that's so easy to take for granted. And as Mr. Ames always say, says or tells us, don't overlook the obvious. Notice here in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be graceful ornaments on your head and chains about your neck. Do we learn from our mother and our father? And it really doesn't matter what our age is, all of us have a mother and a father. You know, our mothers give us tremendous advice growing up. I remember my mother used to always tell me to never back down from what is right. She always told me not to fight either, which was not a good combination. You don't back down from what's right. That was something that was instilled in me at a very early age. It had nothing to do with me being anything. It's, it's what she put in me. Some of the greatest leaders learned from their mothers. For example, Dwight Eisenhower tells about the time when he and his siblings were playing cards with his mother. I don't remember how old he was, but he was just a young fella. 
They're playing a game of cards. And as often the case, when you don't get the hand that you want, which is most of the time, you, you, you grouse about the lousy hand you have. And finally she said, okay, children, put your cards down. And she said, there's something you need to understand in life. You'll be dealt a lot of cards. And they may not be the cards you're looking for. But you learn to play with the hand that you're dealt. You don't complain about it. You don't gripe about it. You learn to take what you have and do the best with it that you can. You know, Eisenhower didn't have all the cards he might have liked during World War II. But that was a lesson that stuck with him all of his life. As just a young fellow, his mother. You know, mothers have, have made kings. They've made presidents. Ronald Reagan talks about his mother a little bit. Let me uh, read from a book called When Character Was King, a story of Ronald Reagan by Peggy Noonan. Uh, a wonderful book about one of the greatest leaders of our time, at least in the eyes of, of some of us. It talks about his consistency, and here, here's something that it says on page 117. Reagan thought like his mother, and it had to do with the subject of nature or the, the world around us. Reagan thought like his mother. God made them, all the various creatures. He was by nature a conservationist because he believed what she told him. Man was made in God's image and given dominion over the natural things, and it was a sin to destroy them or ignore them or dirty the world or be wasteful. Man had dominion, and if he didn't use it wisely or kindly or generously or thoughtfully, he wasn't much of a man. He thought it eccentric, though, to see man himself as the problem and not the solution. He thought it eccentric to put the comfort of an obscure bug above the legitimate needs of human beings. He had no patience for self-proclaimed environmentalists who sometimes seemed to be trying to cloak a hatred for progress or wealth or even humanity with a loud love for snail darters. And he thought, too, that some people were strangely coming to think of nature itself as a god, a god in itself and not something made by and part of his God's love. He hated crudity, cruelty, selfishness, and waste, thought the land is our paternity, the physical things we leave to the next generation. Uh, so being cruel to nature was to him like, like setting fire to a cathedral. He learned those principles from his mother. On page 40, it shows something else he learned from his mother. You know, motherhood is just not appreciated enough in our world. And those who are able to stay home or choose to stay home and teach their children, that's somewhat of a sacrifice, as some would say, but you're raising the next generation. And those that aren't able to stay home, nevertheless, you spend time with your children, we hope, and you teach them the important things of life. 
not by buying them off because you've not been able to spend enough time, so you just give them things, but you teach them lessons. He hitchhiked to Chicago on a job hunting trip. He heard that Montgomery Wards was going to open a big store in Dixon. They wanted a local sports star to run the sports department, and they'd pay $12.50 a week. Shows it a little different time. Well, he was a sports star, and he could support his family on that money. He'd also be joining a big company where, with time and effort, he could work his way to the top. He was hopeful. But another local sports star got the job, and Reagan was crushed. His mother told him again that all things are a part of God's plan, even the most disheartening setbacks. If something went wrong, you didn't get down. You kept going. Later on, she said, something good would happen, and you'd find yourself thinking, if I hadn't had that problem back then, then this better thing wouldn't have happened to me. He believed it, every word. It was a man who listened to his mother, and his mother gave him very wise advice. You know, that's a principle that we can learn in just about anything. Forget about building a city. It's just a principle of life, that we take what's coming and we recognize that God will work it out. There's a purpose in all things. You know, there's so much that that I'd like to, to give, but I I know that we got to get out of here in a few minutes. Let me just read one more story, because when it comes to leadership, Leaders need to be respected. And Reagan was a respected leader for his character. He was so consistent. You read through his life, and, and he, was, he was just consistent. He knew what he believed, and he was going to do it. Now, page 186, Peggy Noonan writes a story. She, she writes when he was, uh, after he'd been shot, and she said, everybody has a favorite story, and this is her favorite story. After he'd been shot, she says, it was closer call than the American people were told. He was harder hit than they knew. He'd been harder hit than a lot of people in the White House knew as well. And he was 70 years old. Everyone who worked with him had a particular story they think of when they think of him, and this is mine. When I try to tell people what Reagan was like, I tell the bathroom story. A few days after he'd been shot, when he could, uh, could get out of bed, he wasn't feeling well one night and went to the bathroom connected to his room. He slapped water on his face, and water dropped out of the sink. He got some paper towels and got on the floor to clean it up. An aide came in and said, Mr. President, what are you doing? We have people for that. And Reagan said, oh, no. He was just cleaning up his mess. He didn't want a nurse to have to do it. Here was a president of the United States, and he was willing to do it because he made it. He'd clean it up. That's character. There are a lot of things we can learn from the Bible, from the Proverbs, from the book of Nehemiah, from people like Ronald Reagan, Rudolph Giuliani, from other books that we might read, such as Into the Black. Wisdom is everywhere. Leadership is everywhere. 
But one thing for sure, if we're going to be in the kingdom of God, God has called us to rule and to rule cities. And every one of us who is here will be surprised with what God gives us. We're building character. We're growing. We are sitting here learning, learning all the points that Dr. Winnale gave yesterday, learning some of the things that I've given here, learning some of the things that will be given later on in the feast by whoever it is, the sermonettes. We can even learn courage by watching the the people get up here and give special music because sometimes we know they're a little bit nervous. I didn't detect that today, but sometimes you see people shaking as they're, they're singing or they're playing. Having the courage to stand up and do something. God has called us to a wonderful and a great calling. Leadership can be learned, and leadership must be learned because a day is coming when you and I are going to rebuild the cities and rule over the nations of this earth to bring peace upon this earth.